As you're taking your seats, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles, the Bible that you brought with you, the Bible that's there in the pew. And again, if you don't have a Bible or you have someone in your life who you would like to give a Bible to, that Bible that's there in the pew is yours for the taking, our gift to you on this Easter Sunday morning. Open up your Bible, or if you have a phone, you can open up to the YouVersion Bible app, tap more, then the equal sign, then events, and you'll see Grace Lutheran Church, and you hit that, you'll be right where you need to be this morning, which is in Mark chapter 16. As you're turning there, Mark chapter 16, have you ever gone to the movies or watched a television series, sat through the entire thing, and then all of a sudden, much to your surprise, the screen goes dark and the credits begin to roll? Somehow the story seems to end, but the ending does not seem quite complete. You're sitting there thinking, did I miss something? What kind of ending is that? What comes next? Well, brace yourself for the ending to the Gospel of Mark. Before we read that ending, let me give you a quick synopsis of the entirety of Mark's Gospel. Mark began his version of the events that bring us here today. He opens his gospel with these words. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark then launches into what can only be called rapid-fire storytelling. I mean, from that first sentence, he doesn't even bother with sharing anything about where Jesus comes from. There is no birth narrative, no genealogy, no family history is offered. Instead, John the Baptist, boom, pops on the scene, quickly makes the introduction, points to the lead player in the story as Jesus' surprising baptism causes the heavens to open and the Spirit to descend. And before we can catch our breath, a 40-day wilderness journey through the gauntlet of the world's temptations is summarized by Mark with just two verses. We're still only in the first chapter, 15 verses in, when Jesus bursts onto the scene declaring, this is it, the time you've been waiting for, the good news of the reign, the kingdom of God, come to earth as it is in heaven. Stop whatever you're doing, turn around and follow me. And then Mark proceeds at lightning speed to highlight the teaching, the encounters, the miracles of Jesus with a sense of relentless urgency, Mark describes for us a preacher who speaks about God in ways that challenge people to believe, a healer whose compassion dared to touch the untouchable, relieved the sick, rebuked the demonic, and calmed the mentally ill, a prophetic voice who ignored societal boundaries by inviting and including women and foreigners who broke bread with those who were marginalized and ostracized. And then, as Jesus turns his face toward Jerusalem, entering into the epicenter of the politics, the culture, and religion of his day, and is welcomed as king, Mark doesn't let up in preparing to reveal to us that Jesus is so much more than a preacher, a healer, or a prophet. As Mark tells us how Jesus prepares his followers in explaining his intention to sacrifice himself in his willingness and need to die to save the world, it soon becomes clear Jesus is not like any king we have ever seen before or since. Through a simple meal of bread and wine that becomes a sacrament of holy communion, through a wrestling prayer of ultimate submission that hands Jesus over into the kiss of betrayal, the sting of denial, 
and the isolation of total abandonment, through love poured out like blood on a cross before the wrath of humanity, hell-bent on condemning righteousness, Mark forces us to see the one who hangs there, who suffers and dies, is more than a man. As one lone soldier declares in the end, truly, this was the Son of God. All of this brings us to the last chapter of Mark's gospel. Three women had watched in horror as the one they loved, admired, and followed was subjected to a barbaric form of execution. Two of them observed a man named Joseph of Arimathea take the body of Jesus, place it in a tomb, and cover the entrance with a large stone. However, because it was nearly the Sabbath, there had been no time to properly prepare the body for burial. And so now, the day after the Sabbath, these three grieving women, wanting to perform one final act of service for their master, come early in the morning to anoint Jesus' body with spices. The reality of Jesus' death weighs heavily upon them. As they approach the tomb, they begin to worry about who will roll away the stone so they contend to Jesus' body. And that's where things start to get interesting. If you have those Bibles open, let's read the end of Mark's gospel. Chapter 16, starting in verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on, on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, They were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Go see the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And there the gospel of Mark ends. That's it? That's Easter? We got up this morning and came to church for that? A frightened silence? Running away in fear? What happened to the alleluias and shouts of joy? Unlike Matthew, Luke, or John, Mark provides no appearance of the resurrected Jesus to his disciples. No accounts of anyone seeing Jesus. There are no grand or tearful reunions, no surprise reveals on the Emmaus Road, no epilogue of reconciliation born over a fire and a fresh catch of fish, no moments of doubt answered with the touching of the nail marks in Jesus' body, no great commissions, just three terrified women who come face to face with a heavenly messenger at the empty tomb and who run off fearful and silent. This is not the gospel we were looking for. What a strange way to end the story. So strange, in fact, it's clear the early church was not at all fond of this ending. If you still have your Bible open, and if you don't, you can just go right back to it. If you have your Bible open, you'll notice two editions that are known as the shorter ending of Mark and the longer ending of Mark. And there's a notation in most of our Bibles telling us these two different endings came later. 
Later editors in the church tried to spruce up the conclusion to fix what they considered to be a broken or incomplete account to make Mark's story sound more like the other gospel accounts. Can you imagine it? We can't have this type of ending. We need a solid conclusion, something strong. We need to wrap this up in such a way that when the closing music starts and the credits begin to roll on screen, our audience will walk away feeling satisfied and confident. We can't simply have they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid the end. But these add-ons were unnecessary. They ignore the fact we come to church on Easter knowing the rest of the story. If we didn't, No one would ever know of Jesus' resurrection, and the church would never have been born. That we are here today, still celebrating, singing for joy about the defining moment in our faith story, and testifying to the life-transforming, world-changing significance of the risen and living Christ proves this was not the end of the gospel. So with this assurance... We can and we should wrestle with the fact that Mark ended his gospel the way he did for a reason. We must come to terms with it as it stands. So if we accept that Mark actually intended to end his gospel with verse 8, the inevitable question is, why? And by way of an answer, I'd like us first to consider the reaction of these three women. In hearing the words of this angel, we are told they were alarmed. They fled from the tomb. Mind you, they didn't just casually turn around and go home. They fled from the tomb, trembling and bewildered. I don't know about you, but I so appreciate Mark's honesty in describing their reaction. He doesn't offer us any hallelujahs. Instead, Mark tells us these three women got the heebie-jeebies. The news of Jesus' resurrection is so shocking to them, it's not perceived as good news it's first understood to be alarming news. They aren't dancing in the aisles right away. They are shaken and afraid. And I think Mark ends his gospel this way in order to remind us the news that brings us together this morning is much more jarring and unsettling than we realize. It's much more jarring and unsettling than we realize as we put on our Easter bonnets, color our eggs, nosh on our chocolate bunnies and serve our honey-baked hams. Perhaps we're so used to saying, he is risen once a year that we've lost the full game-changing impact of what we are declaring to each other. He is risen. The he in question is not just some guy, some amazing teacher, miraculous healer, or insightful prophet. The he is the son of man who claimed to be the son of God. The one called Jesus who claimed to be the Christ, the Messiah, the savior of the world. The one who insisted without pulling any punches or making any later amendments for clarification that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that anyone who has seen him has seen God, and no one comes to God the Father except through him. He, Jesus, got himself killed for claiming stuff like that, perceiving him to be a dangerous threat to religious freedom and a possible intrusion to law and order. We nailed him to a cross to shut him up and shut him down. And by the way, the whole time we were doing so, he just kept saying, we weren't doing it to him, taking his life. He was doing it for us, 
giving us his life. And we thought, this guy is nuts. And now we're saying, he is risen. He is risen. The Greek word anastasis means arising again, a resurrection from death, raised to life again, to stand up again. He is risen. We put him down and he got back up. We gave him our best defense, our default, the nuclear option. We took him out and he came right back better than ever. Death is understandable, right? Death is understandable. Resurrection is not. Death we know. Death we fear. Death we deal in that trade. But coming back from the dead? That's zombie apocalypse talk right there. That's the stuff of nightmares. But this ain't no zombie. Jesus is alive, walking and talking, moving and shaking. He's going to be enjoying broiled fish at a beach barbecue and then showing off his scars to Thomas, all the while acting like he took an extended nap rather than suffering a death blow. The implication of this, he is risen, we cannot ignore. Jesus wasn't crazy. Jesus is what he declared himself to be, our Savior who could defeat death. Jesus is who he claimed to be, our Lord, our God, the one to whom our lives belong, body, mind, heart, and soul. And so you see, if we honestly start to understand this news, to realize what we're saying, we have to admit it actually makes life a lot easier if we don't believe all this Easter talk. It makes life a lot easier if we don't believe all this Easter talk. I mean, it's much easier to follow the memory of Jesus, the idea of Jesus, the inspiration of Jesus. I mean, we had enough trouble keeping up with him when he was alive the first time. We never knew where he was headed. And he was always, we never knew what he was going to ask us to do next. He always kept pushing us, pushing us to embrace strangers, to love our enemies, to go the extra mile, to care for the least of these, and to forgive each other. When Jesus was dead, sealed shut behind a stone, it was a lot easier to be his disciple. We could do things in his name, even if we didn't necessarily do them his way. We could tell others we were a part of his movement without actually having to deal with his claim on our lives. When Jesus is just an idea or a memory, we can exert a measure of control over ourselves rather than submitting to his will. Ah, but what if it's true? This talk of Easter, resurrection, and new life. What if the object of our faith is more than a distant memory or an idea? Not a lifeless corpse who gave his life as a martyr, but an actual risen Savior on the loose in the world whose very defying of death proves he is bigger than the religion we make out of him, that his very kingdom is more powerful than the empires we try to build on our own. If it's true, if he's true, then all the rules we've made have changed. The status quo is being challenged, and we have to reevaluate everything. Suddenly, the future isn't ours, whatever we make of it. The future belongs to him, and he goes ahead of us to meet us there and claim us, not on our terms, but his. Are we willing to admit he's risen now? Or are we starting to understand why these three women initially clammed up?
But then again, what if we face our fears this morning? What if we confront our doubts? What if we believe it is true that he is risen, that Jesus lives? If we choose to believe, if we dare to accept the announcement of Easter, three horizons come into view for us. Three orientations by which this startlingly good news seeks to shape us. Turning from the response of these three women and reflecting on the words of the angel, we notice three specific messages being given to them and to us. One about the past, one about the present, and one about the future. The first message the angel shares is what has already happened. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place where they laid him. The women are told, we are told, you're looking in the wrong place. The tomb you tried to confine him in, look and see, it's empty. Stop looking for Jesus among the dead because death could not hold on to him. The first horizon of Easter is a declaration of something history-making. It is the declaration of something history-making because from the dawn of time, humanity has lived in the shadow of death. Contrary to what some try to insist, death is not natural. That's why we resist it. That's why we fight against it. That's why we're so shocked and violated when it comes. Death is the result of human sin. Death is the inevitable consequence of all that is wrong in this world and in us. The reality of human sin resulted in death. But Jesus changed all that. Through his death, he defeated the power of sin with the love of forgiveness. Through his resurrection, Jesus conquered death, and therefore we need no longer fear it. Death does not have the last word. Jesus does. The certainty that forgiveness is ours, the power of sin is broken, and that death has been defeated all hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. My friends, I don't know what your upbringing is. I don't know what you've been told. I don't know what you think. But here it is. Christianity is not based on a set of ideas, creeds, morals, beliefs, lifestyle, discipline, or practices. Christianity may produce some of those things, but the genuine biblical Christianity is based entirely, squarely on the declaration, Jesus is risen as a historical fact something that did indeed happen. Because, you see, if the resurrection of Jesus isn't totally true, then everything in the Bible you hold in your hands, everything that precedes the death of Jesus, from Genesis through the Gospels, and everything that follows his death, from the book of Acts through Revelation, everything that has shaped our past, if the resurrection of Jesus isn't totally true, then our life and faith in Christ is absolutely meaningless. It is a fable. It is a myth. It is a lie. If Jesus isn't risen, risen indeed, then we need not be here this morning. You should have slept in and enjoyed a nice breakfast. The first horizon of Easter is the declaration of a historical fact, something history-making, that Jesus is risen. Okay, so if Jesus is risen, where is he? These women wonder, we wonder, and the angel gives the second message, a word that orients the horizon of our present, of what is happening now. The angel declares, go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. Where is Jesus? Going ahead of us. 
Jesus' work is not done even though all was finished at the cross. Jesus still has work to do in the world and he is going on ahead, paving the way for all who would choose to follow him. The second horizon of Easter is the discovery that resurrection life is a current reality to be experienced. Beloved, we don't need to wait until we die to encounter the truth of the resurrection. By the grace of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we get to walk in the newness of eternal life right now. We can gain strength, enduring strength in the midst of our weaknesses right now. We can receive divine wisdom and spiritual encouragement in the thick of the challenges we confront and the decisions we have to make right now. We can find lasting comfort and peace in the throes of our sorrows right now. We can receive everlasting hope even in the face of our losses and our sufferings right now. These are the fruits of our salvation in Christ and they are available to taste and feed upon here and now. They are ours to savor as we abide in him. Abide in who? The living Christ, in Jesus. My friends, the second horizon of Easter declares we don't need to wait until we get to heaven to meet Jesus. Jesus goes before us. Because he lives, we can meet him. We can be in relationship with him as a person, knowing him even as we are known by him. Hearing him even as he hears and responds to us. Learning from him as he leads and guides us as we follow him through our daily lives. But where is Jesus taking us? Where are we going with Jesus? This brings us to the third and final horizon revealed by Easter. As the angel shares the third message, we, we, we become oriented in terms of the future. The angel assures us, there you will see him, just as he told you. We will see him not just in Galilee, but beyond Galilee, into whatever lies ahead, just as he told us. The resurrection of Jesus, you see, is our assurance and hope for tomorrow. If we sit here today and our belief in a better future is eclipsed by something directly in our path, Whatever it is that's too heavy, too cumbersome, too daunting for us to bear, like the stone once put before the tomb he was placed in, Jesus will roll it away. Jesus can and will move the immovable stones that keep us in the dark and leave us unable to see the light of our future. His light, which is our future. If we keep looking to Jesus, we will see the impossible possibilities of the present become the unimaginable realities of the future. No matter what occurs, no matter where we go, Jesus will be there. Whenever we see justice done with righteousness, wherever oppression is overturned by bold, defiant acts of mercy, each and every time poverty is eclipsed by reckless generosity, as the marginalized are not just given the dignity of a voice, but the assurance of a listening and compassionate ear, in moments such as these, there we will see him, just as he told us. Jesus will be visibly present before us. Jesus will always be there because nothing can separate us from his love. He will never leave us or forsake us. In the end, when our end comes, Jesus will either bring us home 
or bring home to us when he delivers the answer to the prayer he taught us to pray for all to be on earth as it is in heaven when at last he makes all things new. My friends, the message, the good news, the truth of Jesus' resurrection orients our past, our present, and our future. The reality of an empty tomb opens up three horizons for us to see and follow. That Jesus has been raised. That he is going ahead of us. And we will see him just as he told us. What is revealed to us on Easter, in other words, is there is no end to the good news of Jesus Christ. Perhaps then, the way Mark chooses to close his gospel is not so strange after all. For if the gospel is the announcement of the resurrection of eternal life in Christ, then it is a story that has no end. Instead, it is a story that demands a response. Mark's perceived ambiguity is really a question to us. It's an open-ended ending requiring us to fill in the blanks. Not in terms of what happens in the story, for we know these women did not remain silent forever. If they had, we wouldn't be here this morning or any morning. Mark's conclusion is open-ended because it asks us to fill in the blanks, not in terms of what happened, but in terms of what we will do next. What will we do in light of what we heard? Will we believe in him? Will we follow Jesus? Will we submit our lives to him? Because the good news of Easter, the most alarming but at the same time the greatest news ever declared, is Jesus has been raised from the dead and even now he goes ahead of us to work in the world preparing the way for us to follow. Whatever difficulties lie ahead for us in the future, Jesus is already there. If we go where he is, we will see him, but no matter where we go, he will bring us home. Each one of us, you, this morning, have been given this same message by the angel here at the tomb. The choice is ours. What will you choose? Life is full of uncertainty, full of choices that are difficult to make, full of choices that don't always lead to happy endings. This choice is different. This choice can not only save our lives, it can change them. It can transform the world around us into life as it was always intended to be. But beloved, no matter what we choose, the truth remains and the truth is on the move. He is risen. Christ is risen indeed. Amen.